Welcome back. It's Reading Through the Old Testament. This is Pastor Spencer with you. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, This is week number three, uh, the week for January 15th through January 21st. And we are still in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 24 through 30, as well as um, you'll notice also in the reading plan, it has, I'm kind of making these optional. I mean, I I don't make anything optional. I'm just saying, if you want to do it, uh, that's great. I just don't want people to feel like they're, uh, you know, um, not participating. The point is, is that what I'm trying to say is I, I also added in the Psalm a day. So, um, if you can do that, great. If not, no worries. But, um, uh, yeah, we're doing Psalms uh, 11 through 15, uh, this week, if you're able to do those. Um, so we're, we're going through the old Testament. We're, we're walking through Genesis, uh, we've seen, we've covered a lot of history so far, just in the first two weeks, haven't we? Uh, creation, uh, fall, the promise of the savior, the flood, the call of Abraham, um, his name changed to Abraham, the birth of Isaac and the sacrifice of Isaac, um, in Genesis chapter 22 before last week in Genesis 23, uh, Abraham loses his wife, Sarai, or Sarah, excuse me, her name was Sarai. And so now in Genesis chapter 24, we're beginning to turn our attention away from, uh, I shouldn't say away from, but we're transitioning from Abraham to now Isaac. Isaac is the promised seed. Remember, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so now the great concern is this, you know, how could we, have got to find a wife uh, for this, this, uh, this man to marry. And so we see the story of how Abraham sends a servant uh, back to the homeland. And there he, in the Lord's providence, finds Rebecca, brings her back and Isaac uh, marries her. And um, yeah, it's, it's a great, it's, it's again, that's the, that's the one that the Lord had um, in store for him. At the same time, we know as usual, as is with the, uh, the people of God and with Abraham's family and now Isaac's family, things are never that simple, are they? And we'll see that uh, get more complicated uh, this week and in the coming uh, readings as well. So Isaac is here and um, he's out in the field meditating and, and we're told that that is where he uh, he's out there um, in the field. Um, remember, he's lost his mother. And so that probably is still weighing on him. And, uh, well, let me turn to the passage explicitly here. Genesis uh, chapter 24. And uh, where are we at here? Okay. So it says, Isaac was uh, out in the field to meditate in verse 63. He lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. She sees him. He sees her. Um, and they, they get married. And uh, Isaac is comforted. Um, so here's a section here. I want to open up, uh, with, uh, Genesis chapter 24 here. This is from verse 63 about Isaac going out into the field. Uh, this is taken from Charles Spurgeon. Uh, 
some thoughts here. And of course, this is edited by Alistair Begg, but um, again, the original source was, was Charles Spurgeon. He says here about Isaac being out in the field meditating, he says, Isaac's evening occupation was very admirable. If those who spend so many hours in idle company, light reading, and useless pastimes could learn wisdom, they would find more profitable society and more interesting engagements in meditation than in the vanities that now hold such appeal for them. We would all know more, live closer to God, and grow in grace if we were alone more often. Meditation chews the could and extracts the real nutriment from the mental food gathered elsewhere. When Jesus is the theme, meditation is sweet indeed. Isaac found Rebecca while engaged in private musings. Many others have found their best beloved there. Isaac's choice was choice of place was very admirable. The field provides a study full of thought texts for thought, from the cedar to the hyssop, from the soaring eagle down to the chirping grasshopper, from the blue expanse of heaven to a drop of dew. All these things are full of teaching, and when the eye is divinely opened, that teaching flashes upon the mind far more vividly than from books. Our little rooms are neither so healthy, so suggestive, so agreeable, or so inspiring as the fields. Let us count nothing common or unclean, but feel that all created things point to their maker, and the field will at once be holy ground. But also the season was very admirable. The season of sunset as it draws a veil over the day is a fitting time for the soul's repose when earthborn cares yield to the joys of heavenly communion. The glory of the setting sun excites our wonder, and the solemnity of approaching night awakens our awe. If the busyness of this day will permit it, let it be well. It will be well, dear reader, if you can spare an hour to walk in the field at evening. But if not, the Lord is in the town too, and will meet meet with you in your chamber or in the crowded street. Let your heart go out to meet him. So there we have Isaac meditating in the field, and He's, he marries his wife. Uh, Genesis chapter 26, we see Isaac acting much like his father. He's blessed like his father, but he also lies like his father. He tries to um, uh, find a way. I, should, I guess I'm, not, I'm jumping ahead, aren't I? Yeah, Genesis 25, uh, that's, that's Isaac and Ishmael and Abraham uh, uh, dying. And then, of course, the birth of Jacob and Esau. We'll, we'll talk about Jacob now. But also then eventually in 26, right, we have Isaac. He's, he lies about who his wife is. Remember, he says, she's my sister because he's afraid. Um, so in many ways, Isaac is, it's like father, like son um, with Isaac and Abraham. But then I want to talk a little bit now about Jacob, and this is actually going to be, this is from Chad Bird. We've read some stuff from him uh, before, uh, from last week. Uh, but he's also got a book called Limping with God, Jacob and the Old Testament Guide to Messy Discipleship. And I'm reading it right now, going through it. It is very good, if you're interested. It's going through the life of Jacob. Um, but uh, this is this is the an excerpt from the forward to that book um, that was put on the 1517 website. And so I just want to read this introduction to you to kind of give you a taste of, as we think about, because Isaac really is an interesting character because he he lives longer, actually years-wise, than either Abraham or Jacob. But we read about Isaac less than either of those two. In many ways, uh, Isaac seems to function as a link from Abraham to get us to Jacob. Um and so, anyway, it's kind of an interesting thing. If you read the text, you notice Isaac just doesn't get as much uh, uh, 
detail as Abraham or Jacob. But let's listen here a little bit about Jacob as we begin to turn our attention in 25 now to Jacob. And we remember uh, Rebecca is pregnant eventually. The Lord has to open her womb and she's She's got these two warring people in her stomach, and we realize this is Jacob and Esau, and and so on and so forth. Um, But here, let's read a little bit of this uh, about Jacob. It says, One of the most heartbreaking and liberating revelations that confronts us in our growing up years is that all our heroes are characters in a tragedy. Those to whom we look up in devotion will, almost without exception, become those whom we look down upon in dismay. I remember as a young man being awed up by a leader in our church, his character, his eloquence, the way he truly was a man of God. When later I heard the whispers about his philandering, then the growing volume of the rabid small-town gossip, my heart shrank within me. I felt stupid. How could I be so naive as to look up to him? If I were able to write a letter to the younger me, I would simply say, listen, you're not stupid. You just have yet to plumb the depths of humanity's radical frailty. We have a tendency in church circles to close our eyes to this patent truth. We suppose that the best models of the Christian life are heroes or heroines of the faith. Sunday school material, of course, has mastered the art of inculcating this moralistic ideology with various Old Testament paragons of this or that virtue held up before our children's eyes as the person they should aspire to be. Noah the Obedient, David the Brave, you know the predictable titles. Anyone with even a passing familiarity of these stories knows that our children are being lied to or, to put it more charitably, half lied to. Biblical stars, like famous people today and of every generation, have a large pile of bones rattling around in their closets, and often spilling out onto the floor for all the world to gawk at. Or, to change the metaphor, in the dark basement of every human heart, heroic or otherwise, the wolves of evil scratch and growl, and often escape with disastrous consequences. One of the reasons I have devoted my life to studying and writing about the Old Testament is because in these stories, there is a remarkable expose of these wolves. Here we spy humanity's occasional beauty, yes, and ongoing ugliness, also yes. Rather than whitewashing the flaws of their characters, the biblical authors paint them in lurid and glowing colors. In fact, some of the narratives are so embarrassingly honest that I cringe to think that these poor souls have had their dirty underwear swinging in the breeze of scripture for millennia. Yet there they are, unlaundered, raw, nasty, evil, and extraordinarily human. I can only hope that part of the heavenly bliss for these characters will be in not knowing that their lives have been the objects of sermon material for ages. Or perhaps they do know, and are glad, glad in this way. They are thankful that we can read their stories and, to borrow C.S. Lewis's famous phrase, say, What? You too? I thought I was the only one. And they can smile from the page of scripture and say, Oh, no, friend, you are far from alone. Indeed, our flawed and frail friends of the Bible give us a profound hope. That hope is not built upon them, but upon the fact that the perfect God chose to use such profoundly imperfect people in his kingdom. Among such people was a man whose life we will explore in this book. This is, of course, remember, a preface to a book. The man named Jacob. There is much in Jacob's character, actions, and motives that I find extremely distasteful which is exactly why I identify so closely with him. He is everything about myself that I wish I were not. Even in utero, he is looking out for number one. He takes full advantage of the disadvantage of others. He tells lies, he plays favorites, he fights with God. For all these reasons and more, Jacob is the model disciple. The model disciple in that there is no effort to clean him up 
and make him look more presentable to the world so as not to embarrass God for having chosen such a deceitful man to be not only his follower, but the very man after whom the Old Testament community of believers was named Israel. Jacob's crimes and punishments are paraded in public, as is the Lord's stubborn and gracious commitment to him. Jacob's story is the story of a God who doesn't select the sainted or pick the pious, but who regularly pans for gold in the sewers of this world. And even there, he doesn't find gold, but plain old stink-covered rocks that he washes, polishes, and gilds with grace. Such is Jacob, such am I, and such are you. I have entitled this book, remember, Limping with God instead of Walking with God or Running with God, not because there would be anything wrong with those metaphors, but because as Jacob limped away from his famous wrestling match with God, so we all get by on bum hips and bad knees. Following Jesus, we gimp our way down the dark and slippery paths of life. As we do, we discover, ironically, that the longer we follow him, the weaker we become and the more we lean on our Lord. Finally, at our most mature our eyes are open to realize that we've never run or walked or even limped a single day of our lives. We've been on Christ's shoulders the entire time. So I think that's a helpful introduction. Um, and as we think about Jacob and also think about him, and I think this is a different way for you and I to think about Jacob, think about him as a disciple of Jesus. He substantially was that, right? Um, Christ had not yet come, but he was looking forward to the Christ to come. He trusted in the same God that you and I trust in. Um, sure, some circumstances were different, but substantially and at the core, he's the same type of follower that you and I are. Um, and so as we think about and read about Jacob's life, think about your own life and think about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to follow him in repentance and in faith and with that limp as we're going to see eventually Jacob gets that limp in Genesis chapter 32. But think about what that means for you and I as believers from Jacob's first breath, even in the womb, all the way to his death. Okay, so now here we are in uh, Genesis. So we see, um, we see, uh, you know, um, uh, God, and this is the amazing thing in Genesis chapter twenty-five. We see this. This we see uh, in the womb of Rebecca. We see these this war going on, this this pro-wrestling match of sorts going on in her womb. And uh, Rebecca is saying, this is not normal. And she doesn't realize it until the Lord reveals to her that there's not one child, but there's two there. And they are in conflict with each other. And what will happen, we are told, although if you read it, it's interesting, it's kind of a, in the original language, it's kind of vague, but we know the story is that the older will serve the younger. The younger child will have supremacy over the older child, which doesn't go the way we ordinarily would think, does it? But that's the way the Lord's going to work. And we see what Jacob does. Jacob comes out of the womb, right? Remember Esau, he's all hairy. And then Jacob comes out because he's grabbing the heel. And uh, Jacob's name means heel grabber, or cheater. Um, he's the... He is always uh, pictured as conniving, scheming, and trying to get ahead, a very ambitious man. And eventually in Genesis chapter 25, we see what happens with him, right? He, he, um, he deceives his brother uh, with cold calculation and gets the birthright um, before 
eventually in Genesis chapter 27 with the help of his mother uh, getting the blessing. And we wonder in the world, why in the world would God allow this to happen? And um, why would God ever uh, look at uh, uh, Jacob of all people and shower his mercy upon him? Till later on, we hear in the, in the, in the prophets, uh, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Now, what does that mean? Why did the Lord decide to choose Jacob, a, a schemer, a liar, a cheater, a mean, deceptive individual? And yet that's the one the Lord chooses. In many ways, Esau is um, somewhat, uh, he's, he's, he's not uh, a godly man, but there's something a bit more innocent in a sense because uh, he's not as sly as Jacob. Jacob is is uh, as sly as a serpent in many ways. Um, and we see that in his life. He has to be humbled by the Lord throughout his life. Till eventually, around his, and this is crazy, he's around 70 years of age, he and Esau are, whenever they steal the blessing from their old father Isaac. Now think about that. Jacob has had 70 years on the earth to grow up. And yet, even at his in his 70s, which... For his lifespan, he lives to be 147 years old. That's about midlife. And yet he still hasn't got what it means to be a follower of the true God. And look what he does. He lies and says, I'm, I'm your son. I'm Esau. And you know the story. He dresses up and gets the blessing. Why? Well, here, let's look here. Let's think about this from Alistair Begg. And he quotes from Romans chapter 9, 16. Um, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He, Alistair Begg says this, God is not tied to man-made customs, and he is under no obligation to fit in with our expectations. Perhaps this is nowhere better seen than in the lives of Esau and Jacob. Esau was the firstborn of Isaac, whose father Abraham had been chosen by God to be the bearer of his promises to make himself a people and bring blessing to the world. As the customary heir, Esau typically would have received Isaac's blessing and inheritance, just as Isaac had inherited these from his father, Abraham. Instead, God chose Esau's brother, the younger twin, Jacob, to receive both. Not only was Jacob younger, but he was also an unpleasant character whose name essentially means he cheats. It seems unbelievable that he would be chosen. Yet the line of promise was to flow through Jacob, and his descendants became Israel, the people of God. I sometimes struggle with this concept, wondering why God would select Jacob. It seems unfair. Yet the Bible tells us that although Jacob was an unlikely choice, God determined in advance to fulfill his promises through Jacob instead of Esau. Though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, Romans 9.11. In choosing Jacob, God was fulfilling his purposes from all eternity. He was also teaching this principle. God does not choose on the basis of merit. None of us deserve to belong to him. This is where we sometimes get things turned upside down. We look at Jacob and wonder why he was chosen, when we should really have look at God and wonder at his graciousness. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, Romans 9, 15. And God mercifully calls us too, though we are undeserving. When we fully realize our predicament before we became, 
children of God. Our rebellion, which is deserving of condemnation, wrath, and death, we can begin to understand the greatness of God's love and mercy for us. We stop asking why God does not show mercy to some. We start wondering why God does show mercy to any. It becomes a matter of deep gratitude that he has made us his heirs, children of God. You don't do a single thing to earn the king's favor. You made absolutely no restitution for your rebellion. There is only one basis on which you have been adopted into his family, his mercy, freely given and never deserved. In the words of the hymn writer, Jesus paid it all. This truth will keep you humble when days are good and hopeful when you see your sin. Salvation is never about your merit, but always and only about his mercy. So there's Jacob, uh, graciously chosen and selected by God in grace. The same is true for all of us who are in Christ. So then we turn to Genesis chapter 28, because remember, so Jacob steals the blessing. Esau wants to kill him. Jacob's mom says, we got to send this guy away. And and Isaac also says, yeah, we got to send him away. So here we have Genesis 28, families in turmoil. This is from Chad Bird. You may not believe it. You may even scoff at the claim, but here's the truth. God hears your roar of pain on the other side of your silence. He counts every tear you let escape or refuse to let go from the ocean of anguish inside you. I know a family in turmoil. The mom and dad are at odds over the children. The younger brother has lied to and stolen from his older brother. He's so crazy with rage that he's plotting to murder his kid brother. And this same older brother, mad at his dad too, finds out what really gets under the old man's skin and sets out to do that very thing despite him. And the younger brother, the thief and the liar, is so scared for his life that he runs away from home. I know this messed up family, and you probably do too. Their names are Isaac and Rebecca, Esau and Jacob. Broken homes, such as theirs, full of broken hearts, broken promises, anger, spite, guilt, and all kinds of nastiness are nothing new. Here is Jacob, the younger brother, the man on the run, asleep with a rock for a pillow, alone between a past full of deceit and a future fat with fear. And there, in the midnight of his sleep, he dreams a dream no mortal had ever dreamed before. A ladder stretching to the stars, the stairway of angels. Up to heaven and down to the earth the angels go. From Jacob to God they ascend, from God to Jacob they descend. Here is a living bridge from creature to creator. And the Lord speaks, I am the God of your grandfather, Abraham, the God of your dad, Isaac, and I am your God too, Jacob. He is a God with a past full of promises and a future full of their fulfillment. He doesn't scold this sleeper for having had a deceitful past. He doesn't give him a tongue lashing for his theft. He promises him the very land on which Jacob lies. Descendants as numerous as the grains of dust that are are his bed. And more importantly, the God at the top of the ladder says, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Wow, that sounds sweet, doesn't it? All these grand promises. But maybe you're thinking, where's God when I need a dream like that? Where's God when my real life feels more like a nightmare, one that goes on and on and on? Jacob had it bad, I suppose. But I tell you what, that runaway and I could compare scars. Let me tell you about my dysfunctional family. Let me tell you what it feels like to leave, to crave love from those closest to you and not get it. 
Let me tell you what it's like to live to lie in bed at night and pray you don't wake up in the morning just so all the pain will be over. Let me tell you not, not about my dreams, but about my fear to dream, my fear to hope. Let me show you my scars. Maybe that's what you're thinking. If you are, let me tell you something. You may not believe it. You may even scoff at the claim, but here's the truth. God hears the roar of pain on the other side of your silence. He counts every tear you let escape or refuse to let go from the ocean of anguish inside you. He is your God too, as much as he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and that deceiving, stealing, runaway Jacob. And since he is your God, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate you from the love he has for you in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing and no one. And here's the thing about God. He actually keeps his promises. For richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse. When you've made more stupid mistakes than even you can remember, when you've hurt virtually everyone who's tried to love you, when you can barely stand to look at your face in the mirror because all you see is shame and failure staring back at you, mocking you, when it feels like you've wallowed in the mud of hell itself, you have a God who loves you. You have a God who cares. You have a God who will stand up publicly beside any man or any woman, embrace them, forgive them, and say to the world, this is my child. I love him. I love her. And I defy you to say otherwise. You have a God like that. You have a God who cannot and will not stop loving you and keeping you and dying to make you right. These are grand promises, and they are as real as your pain and doubt and fear. But they are better and stronger because they are God's grand promises, and he stands behind them. You want a dream like Jacob's? You want a ladder and the pretty angels and God up top all strong and talking to you? You want too little. You need more than that. You need more than a dream. You need something concrete, and you got it. You need a God who pushes the angels aside and climbs down the ladder. You need a God who doesn't just make promises, but also keeps them, and who himself becomes promise and fulfillment. You need a God who not only comes down that ladder from heaven, but also brings heaven with him, who pulls heaven downward and lifts earth heavenward and fuses the two together in his very own body. The God of heaven, the man of earth, in one person, Jesus, the son of Mary, the son of the Father. You see greater things than Jacob saw. You see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. You see people with broken lives from broken families with broken and bleeding hearts welcomed into the kingdom where they, see, where they find peace that they dared not even dream existed this side of the grave. You see people whom society has rejected, whom friends have shunned, called friends of God, heirs of the kingdom, sons and daughters of the king. Do you see yourself there? There you are. That is who you are because of Christ Jesus. Show your scars to him and he will show you his. His scars endured to heal your own. He will take your scarred heart in his scarred hands and love you and love you and love you still more until all that matters is not the scar upon your heart, but the scar embedded in his hand. All that will matter is not how hellish life can sometimes be, but rather how heaven itself is grasped in this God who came to earth to be himself that ladder by which we ascend to the Father. He will wipe away your tears, cleanse you of your shame, embrace you as a member of his family, and tell you, I am with you. I am Emmanuel. 
I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and your God, now and unto ages of ages, and even forevermore. So Jacob flees and runs away um, to uh, his uncle Laban. And, and so we see what happens. Uh, he meets his match, in a sense, with uh, Uncle Laban, right? Um, uh, Jacob uh, falls in love with Rachel. He wants to marry Rachel. Um, but the reality is he's not able to because, or at least not initially, because his uncle pulls a trick on him and gives instead the older daughter, Leah, to him. And so... We see what happens here. This is a crazy story. So Jacob is shocked, goes to Laban and has to work another seven years, right? He worked seven years for Rachel, didn't get her, had to work out Leah instead. And then after that, he has to work another seven years so that he can have Rachel. So lastly, I want to read here, Genesis 29, Leah waking up with the wrong sister. Man sees beautiful woman. Man falls in love, man wins woman's hand, weds her, and they live happily ever after. Throw in a fire-breathing dragon and a wart-nosed witch to spice things up, and you have all the makings of a fairy tale. Fairy tales are fine, of course, but the stories that reel me in go something like this. Man sees beautiful woman, man falls in love, man labors seven hard years to win woman's hand, weds her, and rolls over the next morning, and jumping Jehoshaphat, it's the sister of the beautiful woman in the bed beside him. Welcome to the unromance of Jacob and Leah. You can read all about it in Genesis 29 and following, but buckle your seatbelt. You're in for a narrative ride of wedding night deceit, sister wives, a baby-making competition, and all the trapping of a dysfunctional family on steroids, a family we do well to remember that was the Old Testament church. Let's first of all dispense with a couple of popular fallacies that people have have of this story. One, Leah is not the ugly sister. And two, Jacob is not a young man when he marries her. We're told two things about these daughters of Laban, their age and appearance. Leah was older, Rachel younger. That's clear. But what about this? Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. The Hebrew rock usually means soft, gentle, tender, gentle, and, in, and can imply youthful. It does not mean ugly. Granted, Rachel was very easy on the eyes, but as Victor Hamilton points out, Leah's eyes are the beautiful eyes of a person who looks much younger. And Jacob, that fellow was no spring chicken. Working our way backward in his life, we find this. Jacob was 130 years old when he left for Egypt. Genesis 47 verse 9. At that time, Joseph was 39 years old. Joseph was thus born when Jacob was about 91. Joseph was born in the 14th year of Jacob's time with Laban. Therefore, Jacob was about 77 years when he fled from Esau and headed to Uncle Laban's house, where he fell head over heels in love with his good-looking cousin. The upshot? By the time he accidentally married Leah, Jacob was an octogenarian. Given the cultural conventions of the time, Leah was presumably still a very young woman, possibly in her teens. Using modern life expectancy as a comparison, since Jacob lived to be 147 years old, he was the equivalent today of a man, say, in his 40s. I know that's still obviously weird by our culture standards, but it turns out that ancient Near Eastern peoples did not consult modern Western democratized relationship advice before making marital decisions. 
Jacob wound up ex exiled in Haran because he had deceived his father and earned the murderous ire of his older brother. Now in Haran, Jacob gets a taste of his own medicine. Wily Laban out Jacob's Jacob by tricking him into marrying his older daughter, Leah, though Jacob assumed he was leading his beloved Rachel to his marriage bed. Unanswerable questions arise. Did Jacob frequent the keg too much during the wedding festivities? Was it too dark in the tent to see? Was Leah heavily veiled? My guess is that all three were involved. Either way, this memorable line of Jacob's post-reaction says it all. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And behold, it was... Excuse me, I'm kind of my mouth. And behold, it was also Leah who, in the aftermath, sadly, depressingly, but not surprisingly, became the unloved wife. One week later, Jacob married his prized Rachel. We are told that he loved Rachel more than Leah, and that Leah was hated. So which is it? Did he love Leah less, or hate her? Based on its usage elsewhere, in a similar marriage context, the Hebrew verb translated here as hate probably has the technical meaning of unfavored co-wife. So Jacob didn't loathe Leah, he just preferred her sister. But that certainly did not keep Jacob out of Leah's arms. One, two, three, four sons she bore to him in succession. If we're wondering about the emotional state of Leah during, during his time, the name she chose for her first three sons say it all. All three are Hebrew puns that can say, convey the same dismal message. Maybe this son will make my husband love me. Leah wrote with the ink of tears on her birth certificates. She names her firstborn Reuben, saying, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Of the next son, Simeon, she says, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. Levi is so named because now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Picture a modern, modern mother naming her son just, saying, if my husband would just love me. That's the message these three names convey. Leah would go on to bear more sons with Jacob as well as a daughter, but one thing never born of their long marriage was happiness. Jacob had never wanted to marry her, nor is there any evidence that she wanted to marry him. Ironically, when Jacob died, he was buried alongside Leah, not Rachel, as my friend Jack Williams once pointed out to me. Typical marriages are till death do they part, but in this marriage, death joined them in a way that was strangely closer than they were in life. In a sense, and in the bigger picture of scripture, this was quite fitting. Together as husband and wife, they became the parents of a boy named Judah, their fourth-born son whose name meant, this time, I will praise the Lord. Jacob, who inherited the promise of the coming seed from Abraham and Isaac, passed on this blessing to Judah, adding that Judah would be the ruler among his brothers. From Judah's tribe eventually came Boaz of Bethlehem, who fathered Obed, who fathered Jesse, who fathered a young shepherd named David, who became the greatest king in Israel's history. And from David's line was born a baby boy named Jesus, the seed long awaited by the people of God. Rachel was the beloved wife, to be sure, but she was not the maternal link between Eve and Mary. That blessed position belonged to Leah. Women would later sing of the two sisters that they together built up the house of Israel. True, but the foundation of that house came from Leah. She bore Judah, patriarch of the tribe of Messiah. In the same grave, side by side, lay Jacob and Leah. But the promise lived on. Long after their bones were dust, that promised seed became flesh. 
He too, after 33 years, would take his place in a grave, but short-lived was his stay there. The lion of the tribe of Judah roared life into the world three days later. Leah's life, for all its sadness and disappointment, is a vivid reminder that we mortals see only a pinprick of the grand vista of God's merciful plan of redemption for our world. Out of this messed-up, polygamous family, full of frigid relationships, fraternal strife, and all manner of ungodliness, arose a beacon of light and hope. When Jacob awoke next to Leah, he shouted at Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Oh, if only he had known the good that our father would one day bring from this marriage, Jacob would have kissed Leah and wept aloud for joy. Well, I think that's a good way to end, pointing us to Christ. Because let's be honest, um, we're, we're probably, we should be uncomfortable with the stories that we see in Genesis. And um, it's uncomfortable because uh, we think, you know, they're supposed to be believers, and they were and still are. Um, but the reality is also maybe we're uncomfortable because we see ourselves in these people. Maybe we haven't done exactly what they've done, but we see we have the same hearts. And um, and we have to say, like the, like the saying goes, but for the grace of God go I. And we have to cling to the God that they clung to. And we have a God who takes out of these ungodly, sinful situations. And that's another thing to point out, right? Um, why Jacob, you know, first of all, I mean, you think about uh, the things that he did. He's not an example for us to follow in those, in, in many ways, right? He's an example of what not to do. And, uh, um, but at the same time, the God that he followed and the God who saved him, the God who led him out of every trial um, is our God. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's close today. I want to do something different. Uh, I told you our scripture readings were this week included Psalms uh, 11 through uh, 15. Well, I want to uh, close each week now with um, some uh, music of sorts that's inspired from the Psalms, taken from the Psalms. Um, and so I'm going to do that this week. I'm going to, and I'm going to take it um, uh, many of these probably from this this group. It's called uh, this. There's a group called Poor Bishop Hooper. It's a husband and wife duo, Jesse and Leah Roberts. Um, they have actually gone through and they started a, a project called Every Psalm. So they've started at Psalm one. They've gone all the way through all 150 psalms uh, that they've they've gone through and uh, put in song form. And um, so I, I, they're all free for download. So you can go to their website, Poor Bishop Hooper, or type in every psalm, Poor Bishop Hooper, or whatever. And you can find these online. But I'm going to play these because they're free. They're, they're, they've, they've made them available for free online. And so um, I'm giving them all the credit for them. But I want to play them for you um, so that way you uh, can, can hear this. And maybe this will help you um, as we think about the psalms in our personal worship um, because I don't know if you knew this, um, for much or most of the Christian church, the Psalms have had a, uh, traditionally had a very big role in the worship and the song of the church. Um, and so, you know, when Paul says, sing Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, at least he means Psalms, uh, sing the, the book of Psalms in the old Testament. That's at least part of it. And, um, 
and we see in the book of Psalms all the range of human emotions and of of uh, God's work in our souls and our in our heights and in our low points at our best times and at our worst times. And so the Psalms are inspired prayers, inspired songs, inspired wisdom for us to speak. And uh, so it's and it's very comforting, isn't it, that whenever you read the Bible or now whenever you sing Scripture, you can trust that uh, this is good stuff. Because sometimes, you know, you find hymns in hymn books. And if you if you were to look really close at some of the writers, you'd be like, oh my, those people didn't really um, believe, you know, some, they didn't really um, have uh, either a, a, a true faith or they, they got some stuff really wrong here. Um, and the good news is with Psalms and with scriptures that we can always trust, right, that what we're reading or what we're singing is the word of God, and it's going to stay the word of God forever. So this week I want to read, I want to do uh, Psalm 13 with you. I guess maybe I can read that Psalm, and then uh, you can uh, you can listen to the song yourself. This is Psalm 13, a Psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, I'll be honest, the style of this music is not necessarily my my personal taste. Um... Uh, I think maybe you'll find it helpful. It's going to be fun nonetheless. All right, so we'll close out with this. I'll play this song, and uh, that will be all it. Take care. God bless. Turn and answer me and
restore the light to my eyes Lest I sleep the sleep and never wake Restore the light to my eyes Turn and answer me, answer me Restore the light to my eyes Lest I sleep the sleep and never wake Sing to the 